We've all been on one of those girls or guys getaways where you check your problems at the door and revel in the fellowship of friends. Master storyteller Ted Simmendinger is going to share how his band of brothers with the No Bats Baseball Club has taken that concept to a new level to where they have donated more than $2 million to charities across the U.S. and beyond on this episode of Making Our World Better. Welcome to the Making Our World Better podcast, where you will find motivation and encouragement through lively conversations with inspirational people who every day are making our world a better place. Now, here's your host, Jay Clark. Welcome to the Making Our World Better podcast. I am Jay Clark, and I'm thrilled for the chance to have a conversation with my friend and mentor, Ted Simmendinger. Ted is a Denver-based author, speaker, and internationally known sales leadership coach. After growing up in Maryland, Ted earned a business degree at Jacksonville University and went to work for the Xerox Corporation, the huge Xerox Corporation, where he had a 20-year sales career that included five years in the company's top five, three years in the top three, and one year as the company's number one salesperson. Remarkable. In 2000, Ted struck out on his own to share his passion for the sales profession across the globe. He's coached, taught, and lectured on five continents with another trip to Africa coming up to teach professionals from 23 African countries. He was a professional writer early in his career before going corporate and returned to writing to advance his teaching and consulting. To date, he has written 16 books with I'm sure many more on the storyboard, as well as a fistful of screenplays, uh, Managing the Worry Circle and Tuki Banjo, my two personal favorites. While we might unpack some of that, we're really going to dive into Ted's work with the No Bats Baseball Club, an organization he helped form in 1991 that has used the game of baseball to raise and donate more than $2.2 million to 40 different charities. Welcome, Ted. Welcome. How you doing, Jay? Good to see you. Thanks, uh, for, thanks, thanks for being here. So with all that, that big introduction, I really want to kind of focus in on the No Bats Baseball Club because... $2.2 million contributed as a number. So how would, if to somebody that doesn't know anything about the No Bats Baseball Club, how would you describe it? Bad athletes banded <laughs> together. I call it, I call what we do patheticism. You know? <laughs> uh, That's a new we, term. We, you know, we are a, we're a band of brothers for brotherhood right, that has evolved over three decades. It's been amazing, you know, that that so many of the guys in the club have been with me more than 20 years. Uh, and when we started the club, I, I did it. I founded the club in 91 because I wanted to create a safe haven for guys to go and duck the gunfire of responsibility that comes from being in your thirties. <laughs> I like that. You got, you got obligations. Now you got family and all that stuff sort of drifts you away from the game. And baseball was a vehicle that I, a, I missed, I missed playing. I wasn't nearly as good as my brother. My brother was really good. Uh, but uh, I missed playing and I missed hanging out with the guys. But the beauty of baseball is it's a team game played by individuals. And that's the way we got to navigate life. Right. And so I 
organized a weekend at Dodgertown. I rented out Dodgertown in Vero Beach, Florida for a weekend. Legendary Dodgertown. Legendary Dodgertown. And this was at a time when the fantasy camps and all, if there were any out there, it was nothing of substance. And But they couldn't understand why I would want to rent their facility in the off season with no celebrities and a bunch of, you know, 40, 40, I think we have 42 guys the first year, 46, 48, something like that. Um, why would you do this? And I, I just thought it was the right thing to do. And, and I set the club up, you know, the number one thing that was true then, and it's still true today, Jay, is that I wanted it to be a positive place for guys. I wanted a safe haven for everybody, right? right. So I, I protected the emotional experience of my players. They Plus part of it important to me. Part of it too is, you know, one of my favorite sayings from the great Bob Gebhardt was you run out of talent sooner or later in the game of baseball. We all run out of talent. Some of us, it's when we're young and can't hit the bendy ones or age gets us or whatever, but the love of the game, never, you never lose the love of the game. Exactly. Exactly. Right. If you, if you love the game, it'll love you back. Right. Right. And so anyway, I, but I did it because I wanted, I miss playing. Right. And, and this sounds funny, but I, I had a thought, you know, what happens if I get hit by a car? My obituary says I hadn't played ball in 12 years. <laughs> it would have been the worst thing in the world, my obituary. Right. So I put the event together and we had an, uh, an, an incredible time to the extent that after it was over, I got a call from one of the uh, guys up in Massachusetts. It was a postal carrier. Uh, scored, he, the guy scored the first run in club history face, uh. face first. He, he stumbled <laughs> running for home, tripped, fell, and landed on home plate with his nose. And I'm watching that. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be bad. And he Stay jumped the up plate. like a little kid. He's so happy. <laughs> and that's when I knew we had something, you know? And he wanted to know when it was going to be next year. And well, shoot, I did it as a one-off thing and right. fun. Maybe we should do it again. And so one year turned into two, turned into three, four. And then the fifth year, Dodger Town was not particularly nice to me. And I wanted to walk away from it, uh, from the ordeal of doing business with them. And a buddy. Uh, who was a title executive in Plano, Texas, by the name of Ted Darby, stepped in and he said, look, I'll run the money into this so you don't get squeezed, uh, you know, and you just focus on the club. And Ted Darby, you know, that my turn, uh, insurance, uh, uh, title exec, he was really the driving force behind a charity initiative. Okay. And because of Darb's commitment to charity throughout the years and all the rest of us, uh, you know, getting on the train, we've been able to raise and donate over $2.2 million, which uh, I'm very proud of the number. I'm more proud of how we did it and the fact that we've never kept a dime. You know, all the money we raise is, is earmarked directly to the charity and the charity gets all the money and the charity gets the list of donors and so expand their base. And so we do it for all the right reasons. And that's why I'm so proud of my guys. You know, so proud of who we are. I'm proud of how we operate uh -huh. um, and what we've accomplished over the year, despite staying the course and protecting each other in times of need. 
it's it's been a very gratifying way to grow old. Explain how where the where does this two point two million come from? Is it when you get together, everybody agrees to make a donation, or just guys guys in the club kick in? Or I mean, yeah, it's it's all that. How do you get there? You know, there's for for somebody to compete. There's there's two things we ask. One of them is you got to pay the weekend fee, which is the best bargain in show business. You know, yeah, we'll have a we'll have basically straight line the cost of doing it. Um, you know, to cover that. And right. then the next thing we ask everybody is to raise a minimum of $500 per man by whatever means they can think of. And we've had all sorts of creative ways that, that guys have come up with throughout the years. But you, you know, you go around with your, with your hat in your hand and you shake down your buddies, give me a hundred here. You, you're doing well, give me 500, whatever it might be. And so we go out and stump. And because we stump throughout the years, we've got a, a real good reputation with people. They know, you know, they, they know if, if you have an altruistic motive, people know it, right? Right. Skeptics at the beginning, but after a while you wear them down. And then we have a lot of donors now that just say, well, where are you going this year? What are you doing? Who are you helping? And the one that's really nice because the fact that we have moved the charities around from place to place, type to type, does two things for us one of them it keeps our donor base curious you know about what we're doing but yeah. they also recognize that we've we've really created a, a a portfolio of different causes that matter and one thing with the the charity you know emphasis that darb started i have always felt it's very very important to expose the people you know the guys in the club uh -huh. to a wide variety of charities hoping that one of them resonates and sticks, right? Well, it's, it's another, to me, this is another classic example of when you combine an unwavering effort and commitment with time. If you can maintain that unwavering commitment and time, this will build up from 40 guys kicking in a few hundred bucks to suddenly now you're making six-figure donations every year. Well, I wouldn't say every year, but most of the last few years we have. Yeah, but all we could do is the best we can do. And I never overcommit to anybody that, that you know we're going to go partner with. We will do the best we can. And whenever we come up with, you get. Right. And so in from my point of view as a charity supporter, anything we can do is better than nothing. Right. And the guys know that. And when I started the club back in 91, the same thing holds true then as now is I didn't want it to be my club. It's our club. So I always relied on guys to know who fit, who fits, who thinks this way, who, who likes baseball, who's a good person, who understands the importance of giving back. They bring new people into the club with those, those values. They are the ones who, who understand who fits and who doesn't. By putting that together, you get traction and loyalty. And like you're saying, the, the unwavering commitment to the effort over time, you know, you, you look up and boom, look what happens. And that, that holds true to anything in life. And what cracks me up, and I've got to hear the story about who was your first big leader that involved in this. Because if you go and look at the roster on No Bats website, you'll see Emmett Reagan, Jeff Reardon, wait, who? Jeff Reardon? Yeah, you Rick are. Richmond, Bill Ripken, Cal Ripken Jr., Bob Russett, Nolan Ryan. You're going, well, wait a minute, what? 
did I just read Cal Ripken Jr. Nolan Ryan next to Bob Russell? Oh, well, it's really amazing <laughs> if you heard, you heard Bob Russell next to Nolan Ryan. Which and and, and Emmett about. Reagan and Jeff. And I'm like, Jeff Reardon, the guy that was one of the nastiest closers in big league. The Terminator. Look, I'd love the Terminator, right? Reardon, Reardon helped me out. So how, go back. If you can take a step back, who, who was the first big leaguer that got roped into this mayhem? The Terminator. <laughs> it was him. Yeah, right. Reardon did. And he was with the Red Sox at the time. You know, he was the roll age relief face of, of the decade. Oh my gosh. Right. Totally disrespected in the hall voting, which is really a shame. I mean, the guy was right out automatic for years uh, and yeah. Yeah. And, but what happened was I had met Jeff through his charity foundation golf tournament. He, he used to support, or, you know, and it was an avid supporter of the American kidney fund. And so I met him through that. And when I was at Dodger town with the guys, I don't know what year it was or second or third year, maybe a tropical depression came in through South Florida and rained us out. And I was stuck, you know, uh, had, I got four teams worth of guys. with Nice. So I called the Terminator up and I said, Hey, can you just come up and loud, you know, throw BP to these guys or something? And it was oh. season and pitchers like to keep their arms in shape throughout the year. So he drives up in his Cadillac. I'll never forget it. He drives up in his Cadillac, parks it by the batting cage in Dodger town. He gets out. He's in full uniform. Oh dear. Grabs his glove, puts on. Wow. His so he's into it. Cousin, right. He got so we go into the batting cage and everybody got the hit against him. Oh my gosh! Take and a few cuts a against Jeff. Play, if it was a guy who could play, I you know let Jeff know, right? right? And if it was a guy that couldn't, Jeff would sort of you know Lob he, one he, in he there. Best thing about the Terminator, he broke nine bats. Oh, throwing batting practice. Jeez. That was fantastic. So uh, he was the first, and he did it just to be a nice guy and help us out. You know, I'm, I'm glad you asked the question because that's such a great memory for me about a really terrific fellow who did something really nice for other guys out of the love of the game and uh, to help us out. You know, and I'm, I'm always a big believer in what you put out in the world comes back. So, you know, if the club's doing great stuff, that that's where it came. And how has it evolved where, you know, there's Cal Ripken Jr. and there's Nolan Ryan and there's Andre Dawson and there's you know, you look at the roster and it's like, there's a whole handful of, it's not like, oh, this guy had a cup of coffee. We're talking the freaking Hawk is on the no bats and, and Cal Rip, the Iron Man and the Von Ryan Express. I mean, how did some of these big time guys get involved with this? They like me. <laughs> they like us. They like what we're doing. You know, we're, we're a bunch of really bad athletes who love the game. Look, the only difference between, you know, Hall of Famers and major leaguers and, and regular guys like me and my buddies is they're better than us, right? And the, or throwing. all of them will tell you they were born with that gift, though the Hall of Famers didn't waste that gift. They maximized it. You know, Nolan and Cal, you look at the discipline it took for them to have the longevity they did. The Hawk, Andre Dawson, had so many physical challenges with his knees and everything. It was a tremendous effort for him just to play. And yet when he goes out there, he's the best guy on the field. Yeah. But he, he a different kind of, of discipline that the Hawk had to bring. 
And so like any other sport or business or avenue, there's good people in it and there's people that aren't that good. <laughs> Those guys you mentioned are all really great guys. They honor the game. They live with integrity. And uh, I, I think they, they enjoyed watching a bunch of guys like us show up. You know, I mean, Jay, look at it. We're the perfect guest. We yeah. show up in your town. We spend money in your hotels and your restaurants and everything like that. We give you a big bag of money and we leave. It's <laughs> the perfect guys. Do you yeah. remember the first time you ever made a no bats donation? Do I? Yeah. <laughs> Do I? Well, I made I made a lot, virtually all of them at the, at the beginning, but um, no, the first time you gave no bats money away. Oh, oh, that was that was uh, Darby, Ted Darby. We had a thousand bucks left over after Birmingham. We we played at historic Rickwood Field, where you know, which was right in the shadows of where Willie Mays grew up, and and uh, Negro Liggers played there. Uh, a lot of Hall of Famers, the old Hall of Famers. So it's on the Register of Historic Places. And so Darby did a great job managing the money. We got done. We had a thousand bucks left over. And so after the event, he goes, hey, I donate. We had a thousand left over. I donated it to friends of Rickwood Field. And like my eyes started spinning around. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> he goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, what are we going to do with it? You know, we gave it away. So that was the first time. That was Darb, like rolling the rolling the ball, you know, the 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 first Bowler. snowball down the mountain, right? Then it collected snow as it got bigger and bigger and bigger that went right. down each successive year. And then after we got our legs under us, because we didn't always start raising 50, 60, 70,000 right away, we had to do it incrementally. We started, took a baby step there. And then we helped uh, Big Techs, you know, Nolan Ryan built that community center in Alvin in some town. We donated to that cause. That gave the guys confidence that, that they were valued, you know, that, that this was important. It was worth doing. And so then we grew from there and there and there and there. Yeah. And then the years go by and it adds up and, you know, son of a gun. So tell me what, what you guys look for when you're making donations with, with the, the money that you've able to collect. Well, we want obviously a 501c3 partner. Right. There's two things. The first thing is that it depends a little bit on who I'm partnering with. If we're going through a team, they all the teams have foundations of their own and causes mm -hmm. that are important to them. Mm -hmm. Cincinnati Reds is as tough a year as they're having on the field. They, they are really fantastic in the community. And so we would support that, those initiatives. With some of the individuals, like Randy Johnson, for example, what I wanted to, to help Randy with was the fact that he was very in, deeply involved with his wife in the homeless situation in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. you know, they live in Scottsdale. Mm -hmm. And the way, but Randy, rather than going out and stomping for money, he paid for it out of his own pocket. Every time he struck somebody out, he kicked a hundred bucks in. Right. And uh, you know, I really thought, well, that that dude, he gets it, right? And so I'm gonna, we're going to help him out. And so when I contacted him about working to support him, once you've passed the sniff test of legitimacy, yeah, right, and you're validated as being real, 
then a lot of these guys are more than open to have you help them help others. Mm-hmm. That's the common thread through all those guys. So it's it's that circle thing. And again, it, it sounds like this was all kind of organic and none of it was ever super intentional, but it's got to be super gratifying to look back and go, wow, we started together as 40 dudes and now look what we've done and look at the difference and the impact we've made. Yeah, I mean, you netted it out. You know, we didn't we didn't plan this. It happened. Yeah. And we're all very proud of it now. You know, now, I, uh, Jay, I always tell the guys that we, we have reached a point now where it's up to everybody in the club to protect our brand. We have a brand now. Yeah. Right? And it's an unimpeachable brand. You know, we, we put others above ourselves and we don't do stupid things. The club is at a very interesting point, you know, in its maturation because, you know, when I started the club, I was in my 30s. I wasn't a great player, but I was functional. <laughs> Thirty years later, the dancing panda. A little bit, you know. Listen, and but the club, the club seems to want to sustain, and so in order to do that, we're bringing in younger guys. It's like a whole nother generation of us. Yeah, it's a like transition. Guys. Yeah, all, it's all, all successful orgs have to be prepared for the succession, and you got it, you got it. But and that only works if you bring in like-minded people. Mm-hmm. But we have a tremendous core of younger guys right now who, if they decide they want the club to keep going, it'll be in good hands for a long time. Yeah. Well, shifting gears a little bit, you you obviously have a passion for helping people be better versions of themselves, left a very successful corporate career to teach, speak, and write. Where, Where does that passion come from? Well, like Mark Twain says, the two most important days in the man's life, the day he's born and the day he realizes why. So for me, it was when I, the day I realized why. And that came about after a mass shooting at, at, at work at Xerox in Hawaii. I was over there doing business and uh, the worst crime in the history of Hawaiian statehood occurred. That, that created what all of us have from time to time in life, which is a significant emotional event. Yep. You, know, you step back and reassess where you are, what are you doing, what's your purpose? And I realized at that point I was chasing a lot of money, but I was on the road. I wasn't really that good of a father because I wasn't home. I was chasing money, traveling all the time. And so I had material trappings, but I had, uh, I had a big hole where a purpose needed to be. And so... I realized at that point, I knew a lot about human behavior because of the work I had done, you know, throughout my, throughout my, my sales career, but also I taught at the International Training Center. I taught, you know, senior strategic selling to the best people in the corporation and I wrote a lot of the curriculum, right? So, so I knew a lot about behavior, but when your coworkers start shooting each other, hmm. there's problems. And <laughs> You either write it off to somebody going postal being a deranged worker, or you say, you know what? I can help in this area. I can help people from getting to that point of despair. And that was true north for me. So I quit. I just walked away. I didn't know what I was going to do. Damn, I'm a clue what I was going to do. I had to figure it out. But I, had, I did have plenty of confidence that I would figure it out. Uh, you know, you, you, I look back on it now and and I'm very, very grateful for my, for my wonderful career with Xerox. And it, it, it taught me so much to be successful at a different stage of life, but it was the different stage in life that matters the most to me. 
Yeah. Yeah. So if you were just, if, if anybody's listening is thinking about, you know, I've, I know what my true North is and I'm not really following it for you. It sounds like you have the internal confidence that you, you could make that work. Is that what you would tell somebody that's looking for that is have the confidence that you can figure it out. Yeah. You got to believe in yourself. If you don't believe in you, why should I believe in you? Right. Right. And late, late in life, you know, I, I grew up studying the great comedians of the silent era. They were my heroes. I didn't want to be a, a pilot or a fireman or a policeman or any of that stuff. I just want to make people laugh. And Charlie Chaplin, to me, was the funniest guy out there. W.C. Fields was great. Uh, Harold Lloyd was great. Buster Keaton was really the master of the gag. Uh, but late in life, Charlie... Charlie Chaplin was interviewed by Morton Dean on CBS, and, and Morton Dean was a lifelong fan of Chaplin. And near the end of the interview, he, he looks at Charlie and he goes, I got to ask you, how'd you do it? How'd you keep doing it time after time making these great movies? And Chaplin thought about it for, you know, for a few seconds, and he, he would lean him back in the chair, and then he smiled and he leaned forward. And he says, you have to believe in yourself. That's the secret. And he sat back and folded his arms and smiled again. And I've never forgot that moment. Because what made Charlie successful is he believed in himself. I believed in my ability to succeed at whatever I chose to do. The hard part's figuring out what you choose to do. Right. That's the truth. <laughs> you know? Um, and I believe that's true for everybody. I think one thing that I had different than some is that I had the guts to jump. I had the guts to jump. Yep. You know, some people won't do that because they're afraid of what might happen if they don't succeed. <laughs> you know what you do that? You jump again. Right. You jump again. And you'll be successful as long as you're jumping in the direction of where you need to go. But everybody travels his or her own journey, right? Yeah. I just, I just know that I, I trusted, Jay, I trusted that if you let the process evolve, but you know where you're headed, you'll get there. It might not be in a straight line, but yeah. you'll get there. And it might not be overnight. You there. When you get there, the road you traveled was worth traveling. Yeah. And, you know, one of the, one of the great gifts that, that you've given me is, is the ability to not just where you're talking about. It's like, don't think about the worst that can happen. What's the best that can happen? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, last thing, I, I call them the Fab Four, and this is how we'll, we'll wrap up and I'll let you get back to your life today. And the first one is, what is something you will listen to, read, or watch today? Or do you have something every day that you'd like to read well, or I work, listen to? I, or... I read and write every day. I, I'm, I'm working, I'm, I will go back to a book that I'm working on now to help people get a job. Yeah, I'm, working, I'm working on that right now. So what will I read and write? It, it'll be... I think it's chapter five. I'm rewriting <laughs> it now because uh, writing is easy. Writing well is hard. I'm doing the yeah. right hard part now. Oh, that, so that's I, I will be doing that one. It's important, um, you know. If you if you have the ability to help others, then just shut up and do it. You know, and so I'm I'm going to shut up and do that. <laughs> that's the first one. Who's uh Who's a role model for you in making our world better? Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan, Nolan, you know, they, well, you hear it all the time, right? Don't ever meet, you know, don't meet your right, heroes. Right, don't meet your heroes, right. Well, 
the world would be better off if everybody understood what made that guy work. If you could take him apart like a clock and put it back together. He's a man of great integrity, great personal strength, family strength, self-belief, dignity, honor. Uh, he gives. He doesn't take. He gives. He's always been that way. Raised his family brilliantly with Ruth. He and Ruth have been, you know, great life partners with the kids. Uh, he's a terrific fellow. I'm glad, glad to call him a friend. And oh, by the way, he has a thunderbolt for a right arm. He was born with that, and he yep. knew, and he committed to never, never wasting it. What people don't know is that all year round, that man worked out four hours a day because he'd been given a gift, knew it, and wasn't going to waste it. Now, you try that for the next 27 years. Yeah. Well, and was Nolan ever on a pitch count? No, don't even get started on that. Yeah. <laughs> so other, other than no bats, what's an organization out there that you really admire making the world better? Boy, there's so, so many. ALS support. Catfish Hunter Foundation comes to mind immediately any of the ALS supports. And Catfish is a was a card-carrying no-bats member, correct? That is correct. He bought our beer uh, for our, our, our <laughs> rival. Our party was at his machine shop in Hertford, North Carolina on his farm. And he passed away, you know, a month before our event. And he made arrangements before he before he died that we would have some beers on him. And we, and we did. And so that you know, it's a miserable disease. It's the worst possible way to go because you, you die from the outside in. Yeah. Nothing could be worse. Right. So my heart bleeds for everyone who was touched by that hideous disease. And I, I would love to live long enough to hear word that we figured out a way to, to help those folks. And that's that's been a, a no-bats pet project is a lot of ALS support, correct? Yeah, that's a good example, Jay. We we have gone back. I think we helped them three times. Um, I went there. I think we went there for our twentieth anniversary because I considered it Hertford, you know, Jimmy's farm, Hunter's farm, or her spiritual home. And uh -huh. so there, we we put together the No Bats guys. We built we built out the Jimmy Hunter Catfish Hunter Hall of Fame in Hertford at the Chamber of Commerce building. Took construction. Bunch of guys up there pretending that we knew what we we're doing and constructed this place. Wow, memorabilia and stuff. So yeah, it's been uh, it's been an emotional good thing for us, and it's a good example of how some of these uh, special causes stick with a lot of the guys. Yeah, me and many of the others too have stayed with with Helen. You know, Helen Hunter is Jim's Jim's wife, and and she's got the courage of ten people. So. Um, yeah, everybody has special ones. That's that's one of mine. Lastly, nonprofit leaders and development people, just a reminder, we are in business and we are in sales. Ted has so many great resources to help you. If anybody wants listening wants to reach out or find you, how do they find you? Uh, oceanpalmer.com is probably the easiest way. Uh, and they can send me a note. At my number might be on there uh www.ocean o-c-e-a-n legacy palmer p-a-l-m-e-r.com love to hear from it anybody have a question comment observation bring it on love ted is the best look forward to crossing paths and cheers for safe travel very good thanks Jeff. see you 
Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the funny and smart Ted Simmendinger as much as I did. If you're interested in how I might be able to bolster your efforts and help you achieve your goals, I'd love to have a conversation with you. You can find me at makingourworldbetter.com. Check the show notes for contact information for Ted. And if you enjoyed this podcast, we'd be grateful if you would subscribe and leave us a review. Until next time, I hope you're inspired to find a way to make our world better.